Hi there, my name's John. So it turns out um, sermon preparation and World Cups don't go together very well. Found that out this week. But here we are. So um, sh- I remember shortly after I became a Christian, I remember this, t- this time where a work colleague turned to me and, uh, and said, so is it true that you're one of these Christians then? I don't know if you've ever been asked that kind of question. So I said, yeah. And he said, oh, I didn't, I didn't expect that because, well, because you seem sort of quite normal. And I was like, normal, is that, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Because on one hand, you know, I remember I felt quite flattered. I quite liked this guy. Um, and I remember, you know, feeling quite flattered that he hadn't sort of seen me as some sort of weird Christian. But then on the other hand, um, I feared that, you know, perhaps I was conforming to what his definition of normal was, which was, you know, perhaps being willing to, to gossip, being willing to moan about my boss, um, spend Friday afternoons wasting work time sending stupid emails to one another, and then going out in the evening and having a few too many drinks. And I sort of thought to myself, perhaps if I want to be a Christian, then normal isn't probably what I'm going for. You know, like, like Rob just shared in that, in that word at the end of the worship, we've we've kind of been set free for a life that's, that's a bit different. We don't want to be weird and we don't want to do things that would make people, sort of put people off Jesus. But on the other hand, we're supposed to be distinctive. And the Bible has a word that it uses to describe this, this difference, this kind of distinctiveness. And that word is holy. Now, if I, if, I was to, you know, if I was to say, how many people here, if I was to ask you to describe yourself, I'm guessing not many of us would say, holy, I'm a holy person, um, because, well, it's kind of a, one of those words, isn't it? It's a bit of a religious word. Um, you might associate it with the phrase, holier than thou, and it makes us think perhaps of, of pious people who have an air of, of like moral superiority about them, but that's not what holiness is about. Um, the, it, it, the Greek word and the Hebrew word in the Bible that have been translated to us as holy have essentially the same meaning, and they mean pure, they mean um, sort of unblemished, perfect, sacred, and they, and they, and they speak of, of, of being set apart from, from common use, put to one side for, for like a special purpose of being dedicated to God. So in, in the Bible, the word holy, it's used to describe, it's used to describe firstly God, because God is, he's, he's perfect, he's pure, and he's, he's, he's set to one side really, because he, he's the creator, and so he is in a different category to the created order. He's higher. And so he is perfectly and utterly holy. And that's why we, you know, we talk about God's spirit as the Holy Spirit. But the word holy is also used throughout the Bible to describe God's people. In the Old Testament, um, God chose this nation of Israel to be his special people, to be holy. And so we read um, things like this in Leviticus. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. And today in 2018, God, God, he still longs to have a people who are set apart, who are distinctive. But it's no longer you know, a specific ethnic nation. It's, it's, it's us. It's the church. In, in the New Testament, in one of the letters, 1 Peter, we read, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. 
But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it's written, be holy because I am holy. As followers of Jesus, we the church, we're, we're called to, to live lives that are, that are distinctive, that are different. And sometimes I think people see the church as a bit like these kind of moral police who, who sort of wag their finger at the world and, and tell the world how to behave. But that's not the job of the church. It's not the job of the church to demand holiness of the world. It's the job of the church to demonstrate holiness to the world. So that through that lifestyle, they might see that difference and be attracted to Jesus. Um, a little bit later in, in that same letter in 1 Peter, this is how he explains that. Um, this is the message translation. He says, live an exemplary life among the natives, that's the people around you, so that your actions will refute their prejudices. They'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. That's our job. And I'm guessing that if you're here this morning and you're um, exploring faith, um, hello, by the way, if that's you, glad you're here. But I'm guessing that you, you probably weren't attracted here in the first place by some Christian wagging their finger at you and telling you how to behave. It's probably far more likely that you were attracted here in the first place by you know, maybe somebody who invited you and because of the way they are, because of the things they say, because there's something just a little bit different about them, you thought, maybe I will, I will check that out. And that's how it works. If you've ever met a Christian who you just think, there's something about them like that's different in, in a good way, that difference is holiness. That's what you're seeing. So for the question for those of us who, who would call ourselves followers of, Christ, of, of Jesus is... So how do we do that? How do we, how do we pursue that life? How can we be holy? And exactly how holy, God, am I supposed to be? Like, where's the line between holy and, and weird? You know, perhaps, God, if you could just sort of sum it up in, in, in 10 rules. Um, I just, I, I'd always, I follow those and I'd, I'd just do those. And God's like, well, we tried, we tried that one. But if you were here um, last week, um, and you heard Dave's sermon in the morning, it might be that you're, you're thinking at this moment, I know, I know, I know this one. Because you might have noticed that that verse that I just read from, from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it kind of picked up where Dave left off last week. Um, and last week, um, let's do a recap. Previously at Trent Vineyard, Dave was um, talking from 1 Peter, and he was, he was explaining that... Um, uh, in, this, in, this, in this first chapter of this letter, that, that Peter, who was um, one of Jesus' friends, the disciple Peter, he'd written this letter about 20 or 30 years after, after Jesus died. And he sent it around the various towns and villages to Christians that were scattered around those places to, to spur them on and encourage them in their faith because they were experiencing um, persecution. And the way that he did that um, the way that he did that was, what he didn't, what he didn't do was, he, he didn't tell them, you know, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. The first thing that he said to them was, just have a bit of a think about how you think. Be, be, be reflective on, on your perspective. And, and Dave, if you remember, Dave was saying that line, that, that our perspective in something affects how we live through it. Our perspective um, changes everything for us. You know, a case in point example of that 
this week, it was really hard to write this sermon because I didn't know whether, we, whether football would still be coming home or not. And I didn't know whether, you know, sort of like, I mean, obviously it was coming home, but, but I didn't know what kind of mood we would all be in because that was going to change our perspective. And so Dave was encouraging us, using Peter's words, to, to, to reflect on the way that we view the world. And he gave us these four perspectives that we see in this first chapter. You see the perspectives on the screen there, purpose, gratitude, hope, and joy. And they're all in here. It starts in verse three. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth. That's a perspective of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us, his mercy, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And, this is verse four, into inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. That's a perspective of of hope, the hope of eternity. You who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that this is a perspective of, of purpose, of seeing what God's purpose is in our, in our trials and suffering. He says, so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an expressible and glorious joy. A perspective of joy, the joy of knowing that Christ is in us and we are in Christ. And essentially Dave was saying, can you imagine what your life would look like if these were your primary perspectives? If you looked through you know, the lens of your life, through these lenses of hope, joy, purpose, gratitude. And if we did that, our lives would be different, wouldn't they? They would be distinctive. You might even say they would be holy. And so that's the point that Dave took us to, and we're going to carry on from there, um, where Peter then says in verse 13, therefore, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, as it's written. Be holy because I am holy. So basically, just to summarize the structure of this letter, it kind of goes like this on this table. The first chapter is all about perspective. Uh, think about you know, joy, hope, gratitude, purpose. And then he moves into reasoning. He's like, therefore, in light of all of that perspective, then go and do it. Go and be holy. And then he lists all this holy stuff in the next few chapters. That's basically the structure of the letter. And so what you see is this pivot, this pivot bit, the reasoning bit in the middle is, is critical because that is kind of like the first step, the first action that we take towards holiness. And what we see is that our perspective is therefore the path that we take towards holiness. Now it's funny when you read this letter, um, it's really funny because it was written by this guy Peter and if you've ever read in the Gospels, um, 
Peter was quite an interesting character. He was an extremely impulsive guy. You know, he was always the guy who was making sort of like, he, he was like, do first, think later. That was how he functioned in life. And so he was the guy that chopped off a soldier's ear once. I mean, who does, have, has anyone got a mate who would start a fight with a soldier? Like, he, that's the kind of guy that Peter was. But what we see is that 20, 30 years later, this impulsive streak has kind of changed. And so, in this letter, before he starts telling them what to do, he says, no, first of all, think now before you do. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Think first, do later. And um, in, 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 the, in a different translation there, um, it says, um, the, the NIV version says, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled. Um, but um, in, in other versions, like in the message, um, it uses a different translation, it says, it says, roll up your sleeves, put your mind in gear. And what they're doing there is that he, he was trying to sort of um, make sense of something that we perhaps missed that was in the original manuscripts in the Greek because apparently what this phrase meant was literally, gird up the loins of your mind, okay? Which doesn't sound particularly, that doesn't really make sense, much sense to us. But, but at that time, people would wear um, long robes, you know, how they were in, in biblical times. And if you were going to do something, you know, extremely active, like, um, you know, sort of do some running or do some DIY or, you know, take a free kick in the World Cup, then what you would do is you would you'd, you'd get your robes and you'd, you'd sort of gather them up and you'd tie them around you. You'd gird your loins um, to prepare yourself for action. And people would be familiar with this sight. And so what Peter was essentially saying was, gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, like think, think straight, get your, get your head in order. Before you pursue holiness as an activity, you need to first embrace it as, as a mentality. I remember once um, I, I missed the start of an exam at university by about half an hour, and I remember I dashed into this massive hall, and I just, just leapt on to the nearest desk that was empty, picked up the exam paper, and I was like, ah. And then, I, and then I started to panic, because I was like, I don't know, I can't do any of these questions. And then one of my lecturers came up to me, and they were like, John, you don't study economics, that's a different paper. And I was like, oh. And they like took me out, they were like, sit down, here's your paper, and they were like, look, before you start, just take a moment. Just take a moment. And so I stopped, and I, and I, and I thought, right, okay, and I read the paper, and I, and I thought, right, I'm gonna start with the easy questions, I'm gonna divide my time up, and I just formed a bit of a plan, and then I just did my best. 74%, not bad, not bad, eh? It was good advice, wasn't it, to take a moment. Peter says, before you dash into action, think straight. And we can all think about times in our lives, can't we, where we did it the other way round and we regretted it later. But Peter says, no, prepare your mind. Gird the loins of your mind. And then he says, um, and be sober-minded. In other words, don't think like a drunk person does. Now, I know that we're in church and everything, um, but I'm guessing that most of us, or many of us, will at some point in our life have experienced what it's like to have drunk too much alcohol. When people drink too much alcohol, they, they do things that they wouldn't do when they're sober, don't they? This is, it, it, that's why kebab ship shops don't go out of business. <laughs> you know, and that's why we have this um, thing called the morning after feeling, where people are like, why did I, why did I do that? What was I, what was I thinking? I think I told the bus driver that I love him. 
Now, I know, you know, perhaps those things are a little bit humorous, but, and this is just as a bit of an aside. What I want to be clear is that um, I don't want to suggest for a moment that there is anything funny about alcoholism. I, mean, I quite like, I like to, to drink, I enjoy wine um, but, um, and beer <laughs> during watching England. But growing up, my, my mum was an alcoholic. And so, you know, I've experienced that, that alcoholism has the power to, to wreck people's lives. It can trigger destructive behavior. And so, just while I mention that, if, if you are here this morning and you are struggling with alcohol in some way, it could be that it's reached a crisis point for you. It could be that it's just beginning to get out of hand. Wherever you're at, you need to know that there's no, there's no shame, there is no condemnation. And we as this, what we want to do is support you in that. And so if that's where you're at, share that with somebody. Tell somebody about it in confidence and, and we would love to help you find the help and support you through that. But that's really an aside because th the point that, that, that Peter was making here is not specifically about alcohol. What he was doing is he was contrasting drunkenness with sobriety figuratively to emphasize, look, you know, if, if we're not careful, then our circumstances around us, if we kind of like, if we view the world just through our circumstances, that perspectives, they, those perspectives, they can effectively intoxicate us and affect our behavior down the line. You know, we've all made decisions, haven't we, in life, where we've thought, why did I do that? What was I thinking? That wasn't me at all. Why did I act like that? Well, it's effectively because we were drunk. Not, not necessarily drunk on alcohol, but we'd become intoxicated by the stuff that was going on around us, and it had shaped our, our perspective. Our perspective had become shaped by, by things like these on the screen. Perhaps we, were look, you know, we looked back and we, and we just saw the situation through, through the failures that we'd made in the past, or through a lens of shame because of the things that we know we'd done or because of our, our vision of the future was, was framed by fear and anxiety and it affects the way we make decisions or it might be that we're looking through a particular, a particular relationship that we're finding difficult through, through a lens of, of envy or through pride. It's these kind of perspectives, they're, they're intoxicating and they will affect our behavior and Peter says, you don't need to, to, to view your circumstances through those lenses, you get to choose. He says, set your hope. That's something that you do. You get to set it. And so you can choose instead to, to think about these things, about purpose, hope, gratitude, joy. And what, what he's saying, it's not like just like positive thinking. It's right thinking because these, these are fundamental truths of how the universe works because of what God has done. And if we, if we view the world that way, we'll end up living a different life. So how's this work in practice? Well, just like a little example. At the moment, Abby and I, we're um, selling our house and buying a new house. And you know, when you've, if you've done that, you'll know that can, that can be a situation where your perspective just goes out the window, doesn't it? Because there's all these situations that you're not used to dealing with. It's stressful. There's the viewings. There's the making offers. There's all the negotiations. And you know, you're dealing with sums of money that you're not used to. And um, as we were sort of going through this and continued to go through this, Abs and I were sort of reflecting and we thought, remembered, you know, last time we did this, we kind of got caught up in all of those intoxicating perspectives. 
you know, we, and we thought, if we're not careful, that's going to happen to us again. We could, you know, we might look back to last time we moved, and we could be like, you know, last time we moved, we just made so many mistakes. You know, Kirsty and Phil from Location, Location, Location would be like, these guys do not know what they're doing. They're, they're paid way over the odds for the, you know. And we could look back to those failures, and that could shape the way we see this situation. Or we could become intoxicated with anxiousness and fear about, you know, all these surveys, oh, is anything bad going to come up and it could go wrong? We could be paralyzed by fear. Or we could look around at some of our friends who've got amazing houses and homes and be envious and think to ourselves, why can't we just have a house like that? And I guess the point that I'm making is that if these are the perspectives that we choose to see our situation through, and it is a choice then it's gonna be pretty hard for us to, to pursue holiness in that situation, isn't it? Because, because we're, you know, we're not thinking straight. And so what we need to do is, 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 is sober-minded thinking, get our heads straight, think purpose, gratitude, hope, joy. And so we can look back, and instead of grumbling about the fact that you know, we might have paid a bit too much for our house last time, we can instead have a perspective of gratitude and think, well, we've always had a roof over our head. And actually, you know, when we ask ourselves the question, ultimately, do we have a generous God or not? We can think, well, actually, we might have paid a few extra grand, but Jesus paid his life for me. That's how generous he is. And that kind of just changes the perspective on everything, doesn't it? Or looking forward, we can, we can look through, you know, a perspective of hope. Because, you know, on one hand, the house that we live in, you know, for the next few years, that's great, but it's it's not gonna be where we spend eternity, is it? The, the, the perspective of hope that the Bible gives us is that we get to spend the rest of eternity with Jesus. And so that kind of puts it in perspective about whether we get an ensuite in our bedroom for the next couple of decades, doesn't it? And so in the next few months and weeks, if you see Abby or me getting stressed about moving house, you can remind us of this. <laughs> but I wonder what is it for you that, that needs putting in perspective this morning? Maybe it's your work situation. You know, the last few weeks, John has been doing these talks about work, and perhaps, you know, for you, all you can think about while, it, while, that, while we're focusing on, on work is you're thinking about, you know, perhaps through a lens of a fear about what lies ahead, or through a lens of envy about the fact that one of your colleagues who's less talented than you has got a job that's better paid than you. Or maybe for you, it's, it's, it's relationships. It might be that your, your marriage is causing you to look through um, a lens of, of, of hurt or pain, or your, or your singleness is causing you to, to, to look through a lens of anxiety or even envy at people who have a relationship that you would like. For some of you, it might be health issues. And, and these can be really hard, can't they? Because our health, it has the potential to impact our lives and the lives of those that we love. But as serious as all of these things are, we do have a cho choice about how we set our minds. You know, ultimately, even death, as Christians, we don't see it in the same way that the world around us does. Because Jesus has conquered death. That's our perspective on death. You know, earlier this year, um, Abby's uncle uh, died um, in middle age after a battle with a, with a rare um, brain disease. And um, his wife and the family, most of whom are Christian, um, and their local church, they, they gathered around for the funeral. And, and of course, it was, it was a very sad occasion. But at the same time, there was this palpable sense of gratitude and hope in the room. And even, I'd say, in some way, a sense of joy. 
And I don't know, you might have experienced this at times when, when you've been, you know, Christian funerals, they often feel a bit, a bit different. And that's because we, we see death in light of the hope of eternity. And so even as, as, as the church, even the way we grieve, it's different, it's, it's holy, it's distinctive. And it's not just about putting a brave face on things. It's more than just choosing a positive perspective. It's actually choosing an accurate perspective. It's about seeing this present moment in light of unchanging truths and realities, in light of all that Jesus has done for me, in light of eternity, in light of the joy that God is with me, in light of the purpose that he has, that he's working through in this season. And so I'm just gonna leave that there, and just, just for a moment, I just want to encourage you to think, what is the situation in your life at the moment that you need to bring into those perspectives? What is it for you? But before we go, I just wanna acknowledge that the reality is not always that simple and clean cut, is it? Because, you know, the reason, when I said who here would describe themselves as holy, the reason that, you know, most of us wouldn't do that is because we know that our lives aren't, aren't perfect. And we know that, you know, because most of us, the reality is our perspectives aren't as clean cut as those two diagrams. It's a bit more like, it's a bit more like this in reality. It's a bit of a mixture, isn't it? That's how I tend to see the world. And um, that's, that's, that, that means that therefore in my life, sometimes there are holy moments, sometimes there are unholy moments. And I think this is something that Peter more than most understood because his life had been a real mixed bag of highs and lows. He, he, he had made some mistakes and some serious mistakes. Um, he, was, he, he was the person who famously denied Jesus three times. But he was also the first person to, to declare that Jesus was God. And so he knew highs and lows, and he knew what it was to face persecution and trials. And so that's why he, he wrote this way um, to this audience. But I believe it's also why, before he went to sort of encourage them how to be holy, he gave them one more perspective that kind of frames them all. He tells them, before you crack on, holiness is not just something that you need to aim to be, you need to know before you start, it's already who you are. He said, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He says, just before you start there, remember, you are already holy. If our perspective, our path to, is the path to holiness, then perhaps the most important perspective of all is that for those of us who've chosen to follow Jesus, holiness is actually, it's our identity. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of what he has done for us. I remember um, growing up, I used to love going to visit my Nana B in the countryside, and she had this, uh, she lived in this country cottage, and she had this beautiful Welsh dresser with all of this willow pattern crockery. It looked just, it wasn't this, but it looked just like that. And I used to get her to tell me the willow pattern story over and over again, and because I loved it so much, eventually she bought me um, a bowl just for me. It was, again, just like that. 
um, and um, that I could have my breakfast cereal out of when I, in my own house, house. And I remember I treasured that bowl, not because it was valuable, she, you know, she bought it off the market, but it was special because it, it, it belonged to me. And it was, it was dedicated, it was set aside. Nobody in my house was allowed to use it. And, it was, and I made sure that it was pure and uncontaminated. The only thing that touched that bowl was my shreddies, like nothing else was allowed to go in it. The bowl was holy because I decided that it was holy. I made it holy. And in the same way, those of us who follow Jesus, we are holy because he has decided we are holy. He has made us holy. You are his, his special possession. He made you, he purchased you. And he has dedicated and set you aside for a purpose. It says that the purpose is that you may declare his praises. And he has made you pure and uncontaminated. When we cry out to Jesus at the foot of the cross, he takes away our sins, he purifies us, he raises us up to a new life and he sees perfection in us. He makes us holy. And so I realized this is, you know, this is a little bit confusing because I just spent 20 minutes saying, let's try and be holy. And now I'm saying, oh, by the way, we already are holy. But as confusing as that, that is, that is the coherent message of the Bible. In, in Hebrews, it says, for by one sacrifice, he has, he has made perfect, done deal, forever, those who are being made holy. That's how it works with God. Holiness is who, is, is who we are becoming but it's also who we already are. Not because we've achieved it, but because he has. It's like there's still life to do. There's still football games to go and win, but it's already coming home. That's what it's saying. <laughs> and you know, that may or may not be true with the football, but that is how it is with God. For some of you, it might be that you're here today and you know, you've never felt less holy. It might be that the, you know, there's, there's, there's shame that you're carrying around with you. There might be things that, you, that you've done, even last night perhaps. There's things that are haunting you. And like, you know, like, like us, Peter, who wrote this letter, he, he, he knew that experience. He knew what it was like to fall short of holiness. He had made every mistake in the book. But that's why he reminds us, don't forget though, holiness is who you are. And, and, and the circumstances that you face and the failures that you bear cannot change that. When we, when we fall short of God's picture of holiness and we fall down, what God does is he looks at us and he says, I don't like what you just did, but that is not who you are. You're holy. So, so pick yourself up and let's start again. It doesn't change the fact that I've chosen you. It doesn't change the fact that I've cleansed and purified you. It doesn't change the fact that I have a purpose for your life. And it doesn't change the fact that we are gonna spend eternity together. You are holy. So pick yourself up and let's go on and become the thing that you already are. Mm -hmm.